So the first thing to realize about the electric grid is that it is not actually a U.S. grid, right? It is an amalgam of hundreds or even thousands of little grids, electric systems that have over time, over a century, slowly grown and connected in some ways. The U.S. electric grid is this almost like bizarre Rube Goldberg-like contraption that is almost magical that it works. Hey folks, I'm Connor Gaughan, and welcome to Consensus in Conversation, a podcast that showcases leading problem solvers and innovators, specifically those doing good for the world and doing well for the bottom line. The grid. It connects us all to power, energy for our homes, our offices, our internet. We hear about it a lot these days, as demand for electricity grows and extreme weather events threaten the delicate balance between energy supply and demand. At the end of the day, we all want and need a reliable energy grid that delivers abundant, and affordable power to us all. And increasingly, it'll be important that the energy we get comes from renewable sources that help ensure a clean and healthy environment. Well, today we'll be speaking with Cisco DeVries, the CEO of OhmConnect. After honing his entrepreneurial abilities at Renew Financial, Cisco applied his passion for clean energy to one of our nation's most complex challenges, building this reliable grid and supporting the transition of that grid to more renewable power sources. OhmConnect is an energy startup that helps homeowners to save money on their energy bills, and in some cases even make money, by managing their energy use, particularly during key moments of heavy demand, an ever-increasing problem due to extreme weather events caused by our changing climate. Cisco offers another exemplary example for connecting sustainability and profitability. Thanks again for doing this. Super excited. So, Cisco, tell us a little bit about yourself. Let's start at the beginning. Where are you from? I grew up in uh, the middle of nowhere in rural California, just outside of Yosemite National Park, up in the Sierra Nevada uh, mountains, right around 4,000 feet. Beautiful. A little place called Mariposa County. So did you grow up in California thinking, I'm going to solve the energy crisis, or did that come later? <laughs> no, I can't imagine that. I, I I thought when I was a kid, I wanted to be a truck driver. <laughs> the thing I'll say, though, about growing up in the country, and we were on the end of a mile-long dirt road. I had a party line telephone. I don't know if people really know. <laughs> we yep. shared a phone line with our neighbors. But it was a beautiful and is a beautiful part of the country. It is yeah. a beautiful piece of nature. And I watched over the course of my life, and I'm coming to be 50 this year, I've watched the forest die. Because of climate change. Yeah. I've watched all the pine trees die. Many of the oak trees die. And then fires come twice now through our uh, and to our property. Our home has survived, our family home there. But it has really brought up close and personal this notion of climate change that can seem academic and about degrees Celsius. And it's very different when you go back to the place you grew up that is like a cornerstone of your identity. and realize that it has totally and utterly changed yeah. in a ways that I can notice from year to year. And I think that has also helped me understand the nature and issues with climate change a little more viscerally. And it's, it's something you hear more and more from folks across the country. You're here, you know, people in Florida are recognizing every day and 
in Arizona and Colorado where the rivers are struggling. I think it's becoming real for folks. You know, it's that part of the state of California is is very red in the political spectrum. It's very rural, and it's also a lot of folks who know how to take care of themselves and take care of their property and raise animals. And we have had, I have had those conversations where people say, you know, I, you know, they're not necessarily willing to go there where the politics and the policies might need to go, but they are absolutely there to the reality that the climate has changed. And from there, where did you go to school? Where, how did you begin your career? I went down to school at UC San Diego. I I, uh, I really enjoyed my time at UCSD. But after uh, I left, I got the bug and I moved to Washington, D.C. And I'd been doing some work in politics and public relations and things like that. And I was in the, the U.S. Department of Energy working for the Secretary of Energy and I really got this firsthand exposure to really the dynamic and changing landscape around energy, renewables, energy efficiency. And I, it really stuck with me. And I think that really kicked off what has become a, a career and a life focused on environmental and energy issues. So you're working for the Department of Energy in Washington, D.C. early in your career. How did you end up as an entrepreneur from there? Almost entirely by accident. I did not plan to start and run companies. I really am in the business of solving problems. And I thought I was going to focus more on the public sector side of that. And obviously in energy, it's it's still a big component of what we do. But I, uh, I went to graduate school at UC Berkeley and studied policy, public policy and, and the work in economics. And I spent then time in government, particularly then uh, after a few years as the chief of staff to the mayor of Berkeley, California. And it was there that I created a helped create a new financing product. And again, that that's led to where I am now. But it was very much about, you know, how are we solving these problems around energy efficiency? How do we get people to do solar? Yeah. How do we start to give people tools to make changes in their lives that address climate? And you just start solving one problem and another one and it led me here. And so you briefly touched on it, but you created a, a new financial tool, new financial product. I did. I So I was in government at the time, and I uh, was dealing with a neighborhood issue related to an under what's called an underground utility district, which is about as exciting as it sounds. <laughs> <laughs> basically, what happens is a group of homes, uh, there's 100 or 200 homes in, in uh, a part of Berkeley, wanted all the poles and wires from their utilities put underground. It's safer in fires, but it's also very beautiful. Right, yep. it, it clears up your views and everything. And the city has a rule, as many cities do. They said, we're not going to pay for it, but we will pay the upfront cost and then we'll add it to your property tax bill, specifically for the, just for those homes. Yep. And I was dealing with that issue and I thought, wait a minute. If you can increase people's property taxes individually so that they can put the poles and wires for the utility underground, why not just be able to do that and put it on the roof as like a solar system? Right. And so that idea, repay the cost of solar and efficiency improvements as a line item on the property tax bill, is PACE, Property Says Clean Energy. And that was the genesis of that for me and for Berkeley and for this industry that then kind of grew out of that. And the business eventually I helped found and and grew in, in, in that space. And I want to stay on this for a second because over the last year we've, we've seen some new legislation that is beginning to really make some of these technologies more affordable, more accessible to more people. And so I'm curious, it seems like PACE 
or this product could be even more important now than ever. <laughs> Talk us through that. So the fundamental problem that we face for is that the vast majority of people in this country cannot afford a $20,000 or a $10,000 or other significant improvement to their home because they don't have the cash available and they don't have yeah. easy access to the credit. That said, if they could, they could save money and save the world, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's this perfect win. Like, wow, you can make your home better. You can make your energy cheaper and the world will be better off if you can make these improvements. So how do we get people to do these improvements and pay for it? Yeah. What the... IRA, the, the sort of big climate bill, the Infla uh, Inflation Reduction Act that passed last year, does is create long-term important and exciting incentives to reduce the upfront cost. So they're going to pay some of the cost of those improvements, but there's still a bunch left. And that's why people are going to need to finance. And that's okay. I think people, it gets, gets a bad yeah. word. Nobody likes taking out loans, but this is how we're going to solve the problem. Pace is one of the many pro uh, ways we're going to solve it. At, at my last company, Renew Financial, where we did $1.5 billion of financing on people's homes all around the country. PACE was part of it, but we did utility on-bill financing, uh, financing on the utility bill. We did sure. unsecured energy loans. So we're going to need all those tools to come up with the balance of those costs so that everybody can transition to clean energy, hopefully. When you give a stat there about Renew and, and the, the size and volume of, of its work, how should we think about the ability to draw a line from these kinds of products going up in homes across America, the solar and renewable energy sources, to the ability to kind of reduce greenhouse gas emissions? So the motive for me behind all of this, so I, I left the city and after a while I, I have founded a company called Renew Financial and I ran that for 10 years. And that's where we financed all these projects in people's homes and uh, using lots of different tools. And you can look at a whole variety of benefits. How much energy did we save? How much money did people save on their energy bills? But the thing that was driving this for me, of course, is climate and this transition to renewables. And so really what we'd look at is what was the carbon that we avoided? What is the lifetime benefit of these improvements? Yeah. And the amazing thing is when you start to, when you get to the numbers like that, what you find is it gets the equivalent of like, and I, since I grew up near Yosemite, we use this, it was the equivalent of like 10 Yosemites of forest that was preserved. It, it really starts to become wow. meaningful. Now it's nowhere near what needs. It's a drop in the bucket, yeah. but you start to see that these mass adoption of things really does make a difference in uh, the, the amount of carbon. And, you know, as we, talk a little bit around Ohm Connect and things now. And increasingly, though, that it becomes less about what is your home doing in general and what is it doing at key times. So we're really starting to focus sure. more now on how we make those improvements on an hour-by-hour -hour basis. But the impressive thing from Renew Financial was not just the number of dollars and projects, but ultimately the equivalent carbon that was reduced or is going to not be put into the atmosphere. So you go from... Renew to Ohm Connect, and I'm curious what the transition felt like leaving a company that you founded to run a company that you weren't a founder of. How, how did that process feel? So, <laughs> um, an emotional journey for this one, right? Uh, leaving the company that I founded was one of the hardest things I've ever done. It's a little bit like leaving a child or something <laughs> for adoption. Yeah. And I uh, recognized after 10 years that it was time 
that I had done what I could do, given my skill set and approach. We had built the company into something really amazing, but to go forward, it needed something new. And I remember the moment officially I was I was done. It's like a weight had been lifted off my shoulders, and I realized how much I was carrying over 10 years of building this incredible yeah. thing and hundreds of employees and all the work we had done. So it was hard to go back. I took time off. It was hard to become a CEO, and I hadn't planned on it. I joined an investment firm. Right. But what I've really loved is I, I got recruited to OmConnect by the founding team, and it's an incredible group. And what they needed was what I had, and what I didn't have is what they had done, and it was this great combination and I love not being a founder. <laughs> it gives me an ability to see and operate in a little bit different way. Founders are amazing. And I, having been one, I can tell you, it is, it is not for the faint of heart. It is not a lot of fun yeah. a lot of the time. But I think we mythologize founders a little bit and that they should be the leaders of all the things. And you know what? The founders of OmConnect are still senior executives and leaders of the company. I talk to them every day. What we found is we could put something together that used all of our skills correctly. And what a huge gift that they gave to me to bring me in and also to themselves because now they get to focus on the things they're really good at. So, you know, this was actually, that part of it went really well. And I think that's not always the case. So you mentioned the founders. Can you give us the origin story of, of Ohm Connect as well as the founders? There's three people involved that really were considered the founders of, of Ohm Connect, and, and that is Matt Dusterberg, Kurt Tung, and Kadir Lee. And the beautiful thing of this is that they're all totally different in terms of what they brought to the table and how they had thought about the issue of how you engage people around energy differently than I think everybody else had ever done from a more of a utility or, or policy mindset. The kind of mindset I might have and probably did bring when I was working on Pace, which was you know not a consumer-oriented focus at first. Right. So you've got Matt, who was an energy trader and really understood how these energy markets functioned and where they were inefficient, where the problems were. And he was really focused sure. on the fact that I could make, he could make a lot of money trading on the ups and downs, but wouldn't it be better if we could solve the problem <laughs> of these huge swings in the in volatility around energy? You've got Kadir Lee, who was the CTO of Zynga. You know? So if you remember your yeah. brief addiction to Farmville, you know, he sold 100 million alien space cows or something. And keep in mind that social gaming, like as a thing that, just people do, didn't exist until Zynga really showed up. They pioneered yeah. social gaming, for better and for worse. You know, it, it changed society. And he helped build that from zero to hundreds of millions of users all across the world. And then you have Kurt, who applied it from more of a marketing and consumer side. And so the three of them started to attack the problem, how do you get people to engage around energy from a different angle than all of the utility program people who had come before. These aren't ratepayers; they're customers. These uh, were creating games that are kind of fun and interesting that people can spend a, a minute or two a day on and get something rewarding out of. Ohm Connect exists and has been successful because the three of them brought something very unique to the table and, and found each other early in a process. And then more importantly than that, they stuck with it because it's hard and it took a long time uh, to figure it out. Okay, so how does OmConnect actually work? There's two parts to what OmConnect does that are really critical. So what we do is a customer signs up for OmConnect. It's a free service. 
We will provide you free or discounted smart plugs or thermostats or other devices to help you put things in your home that use electricity under control that you can control and that you can allow us to toggle as well when needed. We'll also give you the software and the platform and we'll, we'll give you text messages and notifications when events are happening. And when you reduce energy, whether you take action yourself by going around your house to turning things down or just putting off the laundry, or whether you just set it and forget it and allow your devices to toggle on and off or off and on, either way, what matters is did you reduce energy use from what you normally use? And if so, we're going to pay you and we're going to pay you for those reductions. And that is the reward you get. You also save energy on your bill and that's another benefit you get. So it's great. So that's the the customer side. In, in California, for example, we have well over 200,000 fully enrolled engaged customers, nearly 300,000 appliances and devices in those homes that we control directly. Everything from hot water heaters and car chargers and battery storage all the way to just you know, refrigerators and lights. Mm-hmm. Now, that's the, that's the first half. That's what the customer sees when they sign up and how they participate. And it's kind of a no-lose situation because you're always in control. You can just opt out if you don't want to participate in an event. The grid side is kind of where you're heading on. It's really important. So what matters if you buy yourself, Connor, if you just like turn off, if you turn off a lamp, that's nice for you and you'll save a little bit of energy. What matters to the grid is not what you do by yourself that much. What matters is do 100,000 homes reduce their energy use at exactly the same time? And can we predict exactly what's going to happen at once? And that's yeah. the other side of Ohm Connects, really a magic which is we have done so many events over so many years with so many people that we can predict with incredible certainty exactly how many megawatts we can reduce in demand at any given time all across the year, all across the day. So 10,000 times a day, we inform the California grid operator exactly how many megawatts we have, where we have them available, and at what price we need to get paid to dispatch them. When they say go, we need, you know, on a really bad day, 150 or 200 megawatts in California system wide, or we need three megawatts in Fresno, and it all varies, you know, just depending on the situation. We turn around and our algorithm, our computers, which is very machine learning based, it then says, okay, here's the number of homes and the homes I need and the impact, the things I need to do in order to achieve that reduction. And then it does it. Automated sends the messages, toggles the devices does all the work, and 15 minutes later, it's over, and we're done. We've succeeded. That automation, that prediction, that ability to replace dispatchable natural gas power is desperately needed for the grid now. Not just on the emergency days, like I mentioned, where we're just running out of power overall, but even on just a regular hot, difficult day right. when we're we can decide not to turn on a dirty power plant that's in somebody's backyard. So it's it's really a great win-win. And and for most of the customers that participate, they don't view it as a painful thing. It's like oh, it's fine. It's part of life. It's like taking your recycling out. It's just an easy part of life that you adjust to. And and instead, unlike all those other things, you also get paid. You're incentivized. Uh, yeah. So it's a nice it's a nice combo. Yeah. If you were to explain it to someone like like their five, the energy grid, how would you explain it? Uh, so the first thing to realize about the electric grid is that it is not actually a U.S. grid, right? 
It is an amalgam of hundreds or even thousands of little grids, electric systems that have over time, over a century, slowly grown and connected in some ways. And some of them are way more connected than others. There's all kinds of strange lines. And so there is no U.S. electric grid. The U.S. electric grid is this almost like bizarre Rube Goldberg-like contraption that is almost magical that it works. It's one of the great inventions of human society. And But if you actually look at it, you're like, how in the world is this duct-taped piece of junk holding together? So that's the first thing is to understand that it's not one. The second thing to understand about electric grid is, of course, unlike water or gas or other things we use, the weird thing about electricity is it has to be consumed or used the exact instant it is created. So it's imagine you were refining gas and the car not only needed to get the gas the moment it was refined after the refinery, it actually needed to be using it while on the freeway at that moment. Yeah. So this incredible notion that not only do we need the system all over the country that's been patched together, but we have to perfectly match the exact demand at every second of every day for your whole life. Yep. And that is like, when you think about how, what a, how difficult that is to do, it's mind-blowing. And that's, I think, to understand a little bit about where Own Connect comes in. Because ultimately, perfect. the grid is this perfectly balanced, most of the time, perfectly balanced system where energy is created from natural gas plants and solar plants and everything else. And it is used by people like we're using it right now for our lights and computers and everything else. And the way we have managed that grid for a hundred years since we've invented it was we adjust the amount of supply. We turn power plants up and down in order to match the current amount of demand. So demand is what it is. We just let people use what they're going to use And we adjust the number of power plants running in order to meet that demand. And now, as we transition to zero carbon and we move to solar and wind and other renewables, other zero carbon sources, they lack that control. You cannot dial them up and down the way you can dial up and down a fossil fuel power plant, particularly natural gas. And that means you've got to be able to control the demand side. So instead of now being over on the supply side and saying, yeah, I'm going to change the power plant. I'm going to turn it up by a megawatt. You've got to turn demand down by a megawatt. The nice thing is the system is indifferent. It does not care if you increase supply or reduce demand within quite a range, but it just cares that they're equal. So one of the big moments I had, and and this was years after the founders of OhmConnect got together and were working on this problem, was if we don't learn to flex demand for electricity in people's homes at scale in real time, in the next few years, we will blow up the electric grid long before we get to zero carbon. It's just impossible. There's no even theoretical way to do it in the time frame allotted to save the planet. And I couldn't believe that more people weren't freaking out about that. It's complicated, but this part of it's not. The demand has to flex, and we are not focused on that issue nearly enough. And then I met OmConnect. And we talk about failures, systems blowing up. There was a very well-known example in Texas with Superstorm Uri. And I'm curious, as someone who is thinking about these challenges every day, what your take on that was, and, and what did we learn from that coming out of it? 
Yeah, so for for those who don't remember, and I doubt anybody in Texas would be counted among that list, in February 2021, uh, a severe winter storm kind of hit the uh, southwestern part of the United States, the southeast, well, kind of the middle of the country in the south. And it was, you know, this is climate change. It was unique. It was not a storm that uh, we had seen before. It was colder and colder for longer uh, than uh, any of the modeling suggested would happen. So we're, we're seeing, you know, the, the global weirding associated with climate change. The scary part was it settled in over Texas and they had a bunch of power plants, primarily natural gas, but including some wind and other things that came offline, partly because they couldn't get enough gas, partly because gas uh, things froze. Electric systems, uh, the wires and transmission facilities failed because of ice. It was like a literally a perfect storm. Yeah. And the power went out in some cases for days. Yeah. And so that is a great example of our old crumbling electric grid that we're holding together with bailing wire. Yeah. So we're all having these crazy, unique weather conditions. We're seeing that the electric system is crumbling yeah. under that challenge. And on top of that, we are transitioning to renewables, which are intermittent. And on top of that, we're electrifying everything on the back end, like you talked about from the IRA, electric cars and heat pumps and everything else, which we desperately need. And so we are just piling problems upon problems upon the, on the sheet. And, and Texas is an example of what happens when it breaks. And yeah. we're not prepared for how bad that is. And that's one of the things Home Connect can help prevent, but it is also a warning sign of the danger we're in. Well, and it, you think about the precarious nature of the grid through other lenses as well, like health and safety, should it go down? National security, should it be attacked? Just the the simple resiliency required to live our lives, it's a big issue. Uh, It is one of the most significant national security issues that people don't talk about as much, but the the fragility of our electric grid is is, uh, actually one of the things that those that are experts in this worry about the most. Here's where Ohm Connect can come in and where national security, these things can come in, which is what Ohm Connect does in its very simplest phase is we engage individual customers and we help them adjust the amount of energy that they're using, electricity they're using at key times when the grid is stressed and dirty and expensive. We can do that day in and day out as we do in California and Texas and New York and Australia and other places, but it's particularly important in an emergency. The average impact we have in a home in reducing energy use during an Ohm Connect event, if we had enough homes in Texas connected, uh, I think the number was like around 10% of homes had connected, participating in Ohm Connect or Ohm Connect-like service, we could have prevented the blackouts, the loss of life, and the billions of dollars of losses. And that's just not hyperbole. Yeah. In September uh, of last year in California, the state of California had the worst grid crisis it has ever faced. The highest amount of uh, demand on the grid during an incredible heat wave over Labor Day. Ohm Connect and others involved stepped in. We were able to reduce the amount of energy being used by our customers by about a third on average for hours at a time. We paid them millions of dollars to do it because the grid was paying us for the support. We passed it along to the customers. And the lights didn't go off. Yeah. We faced a three gigawatt shortfall on supply on that day. And we were able to overcome it because of these tools. So it is also really important to how we save lives and, and keep the country safe. And I don't think people quite understand that like a little smart plug or a smart thermostat can be that powerful in, in, as we go forward. So from 
online games to electrical grid, gamification is something that comes up a lot when talking about behavior change. And I'm curious how that fit into your planning. We didn't start out to say, oh, we are, we're going to create this game that's going to, people are going to subconsciously learn about energy. It was a game to get people to take action about yeah. very specific moments. But what's happened is that they've taken this demand response, like, hey, we teach you about once a week, maybe we ask you to turn down your energy use for an hour. But the process of doing that has then playing that game has taught you what's using energy and right. when. And then people are just more thoughtful about it. So the actual energy reductions from our customers are way beyond anything that we can really claim credit for from our events. What I love is this notion that companies are out here working towards a sustainable future, but also doing it knowing that a company only exists if it's making money. <laughs> There's got, it's got to be profitable, but, but you can align profit and purpose. And so I'm curious to have you talk a little bit about that alignment and that confluence and how you think about it in your work. Thanks. And, you know, honestly, I, I, I sometimes wake up and I'm like, I, I know there are easier ways to make money than the way we're doing it. And we do it because of the mission, yeah. right? Obviously, I want to build an incredibly, and we are building an incredibly successful, robust company that people can work for and people can make money and our customers enjoy. That's important. And it's also important to me and to the founding team and virtually everybody at my company that we're doing something good for the world. We're helping people. Yeah. And how do you make sure that those stay aligned? And, and the way that, that I do it and the way that we talk about it internally is you've got to align the way you make money to the outcome of the mission you're trying to do. So it's very easy and it's not without merit for you to be a company that says, look, I do financial services, I do loans or whatever. And you might have a sustainability element. You might say part of our mission is to do right by the planet. And maybe you give a few percent of your profits to the Sierra Club. That's fine. That is not enough for us. It's not enough for me. It's not enough for Home Connect. What we want is that every dollar we make be aligned with a discrete benefit to carbon emissions or to relieving people of energy bill costs or other things. So that we are making sure that when we do good, when we do well, when our bank account goes up, that is entirely because we have created a benefit. And the nice thing about the energy markets, and I, I really credit the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission over 10 years ago with doing this, is they made it possible for us to get paid in the electricity markets for reducing megawatts instead of producing them. But we get paid in exactly the same way, and we get paid exactly the same amount. So what that means for us is every time I reduce a megawatt in the grid in Texas or California or New York or wherever, yep. I get paid for that by the market, and we get turned on instead of a power plant getting turned on. So that dollar of that megawatt is because we didn't turn on a power plant. It's directly connected. Yep. And then we take a big chunk of that dollar and we pass along to our customers for their participation and performance. So you've really created this cycle in which I don't have to worry day in and day out, am I doing enough on our mission? Because we have aligned it that us doing well in reducing energy use in people's homes is perfectly rewarded with dollars and that's perfectly aligned with the mission that we've set out. Yeah. And I just love that connection and it makes my life, to be honest, a lot easier. Yeah. Where do you hope Ohm Connect is five years from now, 10 years from now? So I, I think that what we are building and what's going to happen, what needs to happen anyway, 
is that the majority of things that use electricity in your home has gone up, meaning your car now plugs in, your furnace uses electricity instead of natural gas, your stove is induction instead of gas. All of those things are going to happen. So you're like, great. So the world I look forward to is, number one, we're using electricity instead of burning fossil fuels in our homes and our cars. Great. Number two, the electricity we're using to power it is increasingly zero carbon, mostly renewables. We know how to do both of these things. There's no problem with technology. Those technologies exist. Their price points are in line or getting there soon. And we know how to build solar plants incredibly cost-effectively. It's the cheapest power on Earth now. The thing that then is needed is that those devices and appliances and those all those things in your home need to quietly adjust based on the grid in ways that hopefully you don't even notice. Already, your thermostat, if you have a thermostat on the wall and it's set to 70 degrees or 68 degrees, it floats. When it gets to 67 or 66 degrees, it'll turn on, it'll take it up to 70, and then it'll let it float back down. Things like just adjusting that so it floats a little further down, or maybe it cools earlier and then allows it to float through the evening. There's so many easy ways for us to control all these little devices in your home so that we're just not using energy when we don't need to. It's not a, mm-hmm. it's not a bummer. Your life isn't miserable. You're not sweating in the dark. And so we need all of our homes to have that capability. And that's where Own Connect comes in. So when I look forward, I say millions of homes and millions of appliances and devices that are quietly adjusting the amount of electricity they're using so that we can have a zero carbon grid as soon as possible. And in the process of that, we're going to pay people millions and millions of dollars. And I feel like that's a really great place to be. There's no, nobody looks at that and goes, oh, that sucks. Like, no, that sounds pretty good. Right. And so that's where we're headed. That's what we're building. And I actually think we're going to be able to do it. And I hope we're going to be able to do it sooner than uh, many would predict. And you said all of these all these homes, millions and millions of homes. And I think that's actually a really important um, topic to talk about real quick, which is just how do we make sure that as we are addressing some of these big challenges, we're doing the right thing along the way for everybody and getting you know everyone to see the benefits and what's the route we need to be taking or the thoughts we need to be having along the way? Connor, I worry uh, about this one a lot. Let me sort of phrase back to you what I, what I think the problem is based on that, that excellent question. As we have been transitioning towards cleaner power and uh, electric appliances and cars and things, we have not done so equally. We have made it so that people with means, people like me, probably people like you, who can afford an electric car or solar on the roof or own a home, (laughs) they, we, are getting cheaper, cleaner, more reliable power. Yep. Awesome. I have a car, my electric car. I like it better than I ever liked an ice car. I like it because it's just a better car. It works better. It requires less maintenance. It, it does all the things I want it to do, but better. So my life has been improved by the transition to clean energy, setting aside my job, of course, <laughs> which also pays the bills and all that. I think my home is more comfortable. My power is cheaper and my car is more fun. Yeah, Awesome. I win. The problem right now is that most people are losing. Most people are getting less reliable, more expensive, dirtier power. They're stuck with older, more polluting, more 
challenged vehicles. We, they do not get the benefit of induction heating or any of the other things. They're stuck. We are creating what I call an energy divide, a divide of the energy haves and have-nots, just like we've did with the transition to, um, from you know, Ma Bell and your, your telephone to, to uh, high-speed the internet. Digital world. The digital yeah. divide. So here's where that's got to stop. We, number one, we need everyone to transition. We don't have time to leave people behind. Number two, it's unethical. And number three, we will lose the political will to save the planet if we're leaving most of the people behind in the transition. If most people's lives are getting worse because of solar and efficiency and these things, they will stop voting for the kinds of policies and changes and people that will allow us to save the planet. And we can't let that happen. It's not ethical to leave them behind. It's also, even if you don't care about that, it just means we're not going to get it done. Right. <laughs> so I really want to make sure that we're focused as a core part of policies and business that everybody, it's democratized access. Everybody should have access. I don't, we don't need to make it special for people who are lower income or higher income. Just say everybody gets access. One of the great things about Ohm Connect is it's the same no matter who you are. We have thousands of customers in trailer homes. I have tens of thousands in apartments that rent apartments. I have people in mansions with multiple Teslas. Everybody participates in the same program. Everybody has the opportunity to earn money and rewards and win and help out. Yeah. And it's hard to think of a single other thing as part of this transition that has that benefit. And so I love that part of Ohm Connect, but I also just think, man, we need to focus on this like a laser beam as a society. And I, I'm very worried about the trajectory we're on. I mean, it, it segues to my last few questions, which are more inspirational in nature. And I think whether it's, we'll just stick with that particular example of the, of the energy divide. This is a giant, systemic, big challenge. And it's going to require people, organizations, industries, all to come together to address it. How do we even start when it's something so big? How do you get going when the, the challenge is so daunting? Uh, there are moments, and more than I'd care to admit, where I feel a lot of pessimism and doom, right? You can't read the yeah. new IPCC report or watch the forest outside my, my family yeah. home and not think, it's too late. We're not moving fast enough. And... That might be true, but I would argue that it doesn't matter. We don't know. And all we can do is take a swing. You can't, nobody's a monk. I still travel on airplanes. I know airplanes are bad for the climate. I try to minimize it, but you know what? You know, sometimes there's beauty. I took my son to the Amazon last month as a big trip when he's 12 years old and to see a beautiful place under threat, but also just to see a different world. Yeah. And whatever carbon was involved in that, I think was worth it because it is part of being human and part of being on the planet. So it is not about being perfect or saying like, well, I can't do everything, so I might as well not do anything. The issue is just take a step. So whether that's you personally, whether that's me as a company, whether that's the state as a whole, like it just, you just keep moving forward. The thing that I come back to that gives me hope is that humanity over time has been really good at doing the right thing at the last possible second. <laughs> Not every time, and who knows what the alternative timelines might have been, right. but we tend to come together somehow and persevere. 
And so we've got to believe that we can, and I do. And I also know that you don't turn that corner one day and it just happens. It happens because you take a step, you take a step, and then all of a sudden, a thing you thought was impossible, it turns out everyone just didn't realize it. And there's, yeah. there are more examples of that kind of success than we give credit for. And I think those steps, one by one, they add up, but they just also just create a momentum and you don't really see how far we've come. Right. So I hope 10 years from now, that's the story. I fear that it might not be, but what's the harm in trying? Right. And maybe the fear helps motivate us to work a little harder. I'll tell you one thing we have found does not work, Connor, is guilt. Yeah. I think fear can be a good motivator. And I think greed, let people be greedy if they can get, if they can make yeah. some money doing the right thing. You know, yeah. I, I'm not going to be picky right now. We have a lot of problems with our system, I, our economic system. But right now I'm, I'm pretty focused on if you want to get rich doing exactly the right thing, go, you go. Yeah. There's going to be a lot of trade-offs and things as we go along. I do uh, absolutely think that guilt is a failure. Us trying to make you feel bad about a choice you're making is inappropriate. Maybe it works for your kids. If your kids do that to you, fine. <laughs> we have found at OmConnect in marketing, and we're probably the most successful, certainly one of the most successful energy uh, marketing organizations on earth. And what we have found is it is always the economics. People are making changes and choices because of the economics, because they yeah. save money, they want money, whatever it is. They're proud of what they're doing for the environment. They tell their friends because of the environment, but they're doing it for the economic reasons. And so let's embrace that right now. Yeah. Don't guilt people into it. It won't work. It never has. What does work is aligning people's economic and other interests in a way that gets to the outcome we want. And uh, I think OmConnect's doing that, and I think we need to do a lot more of that. Awesome. Thanks to Cisco for this fun conversation. Consensus in Conversation is hosted by me, Connor Gaughan. The episode is produced by Will Gatchel, Chandler Bramstead, and Jeff Rock. Executive produced by me with editing from Reasonable Volume. Special thanks to Consensus Creative Director Kate Tucker and strategist Patrick Gallagher. Don't forget to like and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. We'll see you next week.